0: We believe that the closure process is only going to be realized if we sustain organizing and increase that organizing over time until the last person's taken off that island and it's shut down for good.
1: Welcome to New Thinking from the Center for Court Innovation. I'm Matt Watkins. Both elements of today's title are aspirational. Ending bail closing Rikers. Uh, Neither of these has happened yet, but some really significant progress is being made on each. In New York State, sweeping restrictions to how bail can be used are about to be enacted. It's maybe the most significant of uh, any of the statewide bail reforms passed so far. And assuming it's implemented correctly, and we're going to get into that, um, my colleagues here estimate 90% of cases currently eligible for bail and thus pretrial or wealth-based detention will not be eligible for either across New York State come January 1st. Then, on closing Rikers Island, New York City's isolated and notoriously violent jail facility, As I record this intro, we're just a couple days away from a potentially historic New York City Council vote. It would authorize the construction of four replacement so-called community-based jails. And in the handful of days since I recorded the interview you're about to hear, the city has also just lowered yet again its target population for those replacement jails. You're going to hear some talk in this episode about jail numbers and getting them down as low as possible. So bear in mind, the planning now is for a New York City-wide jail population of 3,300 by 2026, when Rikers is scheduled to be closed. I don't think even a year ago anyone thought we'd be making plans based on so low a number. The movements to end bail and close jails are connected, and my guest today is in the thick of both those fights. Gabriel Saya is the co-executive director of the Catal Center for Health, Equity, and Justice. And I started our conversation by asking him to tell me a little bit more about Catal.
0: We're relatively new still. We launched in 2016, and we use organizing and advocacy to try to transform systems. Um, we work with people impacted uh, by the issues that we're working on, so when we work on bail reform, we're working with folks that have been impacted by really terrible bail laws when we're doing parole reform or working with folks that have been impacted by the parole laws we work on police accountability and arrest diversion trying to keep people out of the system and those are all really local uh, fights we also do state level reform in both connecticut and new york where we're trying to connect the work locally with the work at the state level and vice versa so as an example when we started working on the Close Rikers effort in 2015, was the first campaign that we had started working on in partnership with just leadership. Even before Catal had before publicly we existed, yeah, before we'd finalized our paperwork, I mean before we'd even really finalized our name. It was the summer of 2015. My co-director Lorenzo and I in August of 2015 wrote the first strategy document for the Close Rikers campaign. And the Close Rikers effort has obviously distinct city-based elements here to close down that jail but you have to do things at the state level to make that possible. But that kind of connection, like we wanna do this thing in the city, which is close Rikers, to do that, we have to reduce the population in the jails, the detention population, we gotta get people out. There's some things that the city can do to accomplish that aim, but there's things that you have to do at the state level. Our principal methodology is community organizing, and uh, my co-director, Lorenzo, is a, a long-time organizer, 25, 30 years. I've been organizing for almost 20 years, but he's one of the people that mentored and trained me along the way. But we don't leave other methodologies sort of on the side. I mean, we utilize advocacy and communications. And so we try to find ways to bring together teams that, or partnerships that can do more together than any of us could do on our own.
1: This big package of criminal justice reforms that has recently passed in New York State that your group was involved in in advocating for, it's got a few prongs— um, mm-hmm. We've got discovery, we've got speedy trial. For the purpose of this conversation, we're going to focus mostly on, on the bail mm-hmm. uh, aspect, which I think is the one with the greatest potential, decarcerative potential, greatest potential to really reduce yep. jail numbers. So let's just start with a sort of 101 a little bit. I mean, the purpose of bail is to try to guarantee that people are going to show up for their next court appearances. That's right. But in general, why do people miss court appearances and, and how uh, effective is, is bail at making them show up?
0: The first thing is people can miss a court date for any number of reasons, not the least of which is our justice system is Byzantine and completely confusing to the everyday person. It, it's confusing even to actors within it. You can be given a, a desk appearance ticket, miss that date quite easily, and all of a sudden have a bench warrant out for your arrest. It is easy to miss a court date, particularly people who have lives that they're trying to live to get their kids to school, you know, go to work and so forth. Most people, if they have a court date, they want to go get the darn thing resolved and over with. It's a matter of making sure that they know when the court date is and making the process clear for people so that they understand where they have to be and what time they got to be there. And also not being flippant with people's time. You go stand in in line in court in the morning. You're there for a better part of the day waiting for your case. And then all of a sudden it gets pushed back again another six to eight weeks and you got to go through the whole thing again. The system just grinds people down. And then, of course, what happens is that many people can't afford to pay the bail that the judges set. And that's when you see folks ending up detained because they can't afford to pay something, which is that sort of the heart of the injustice here in many respects. Because if you've got the money, you can pay the bail. But if you don't have the money, you're usually sitting inside. Or you got to work with some, you know, bail bonds company that...
1: A for-profit. A
0: for-profit bail bonds company where the bail fund is usually a nonprofit that will pay your bail. There's no profit motive there. Usually bail funds are oriented around trying to help people and to transform the system and make it more just, whereas bail bondsmen or the bail bonds industry is around extracting capital from poor people and getting themselves a profit from it. And so, for low-income people, which are the predominant number of people cycling through our system, the bail setup is egregious. It is, is patently in, unjust, and poor people all the time get stuck in jail simply because they can't afford to pay a bail, and that's at the heart of the problem here. Right. So we know
1: that the bulk of people in New York City, New York State, and across the country in local jails are there pretrial, awaiting their trials, generally because they can't afford their bail. A lot is at stake here. I mean, what do we know about the you know really negative effects of pretrial
0: detention itself? Yeah, any time in jail is bad for people. People can lose their jobs. They can miss paying rent, not be with their kids. Health impacts of jail, even a short stay even a stay of a few days are awful. They're only there because the court says, well, the mechanism that we're going to use to make sure you come back to court is this money bail. You don't have that money. So to make sure that you're here for the court date, we're going to keep you in jail. That's outrageous. Just flat out. And it harms people, particularly around mental health uh, issues. Uh, Folks oftentimes end up uh, having mental health episodes. uh, that get triggered as a result of their jail stays. They're violent places in many respects. And in addition to many of them just are being terrible places to be physically. Um, And anyone who's ever been to Rikers and walked through, it is an awful place. And the fact that people are there at all is a scandal in this city. Uh, The fact that people survive it is a testament to their perseverance and uh, resilience. Um, And the fact that the city hasn't shuttered the darn thing yet is really shame on all of us for that as a city. All right. So we're getting a
1: good sense of the scope of the problem out there associated with bail and the way pretrial detention can kind of function in this counterproductive way, really, if the goal is producing sort of greater public safety. If we turn to look now at the New York state legislation, what's the significance for you of what has passed now with with regards to bail? What, what are the biggest highlights
0: for you? I mean, there's multiple things in this package that are worth talking about because it's arguably one of the biggest pretrial reform packages and criminal justice reform packages that's passed certainly ever in New York. And also in the nation, it is extremely significant what New York has done here. Jail populations, if this new law is implemented correctly, are going to drop precipitously, especially outside of the city of New York, but even inside of the city of New York. I mean, some estimates, even CCI's estimate is well over 40%. Yeah,
1: 43%, uh, I think. Yeah, will be the
0: expected drop, which is significant here. We're gonna see. I mean, there was a, another recent report came out of a, a place at John Jay, one of their research institutes there,
1: Data Collaborative for Justice. Yes, I think, and yeah. they did
0: their their report that I was reading showed that if the bail law had been in place last year in 2018, 21,000 fewer people would have been detained. That's a lot of people not having to cycle through. Uh, they went that back system.
1: even through the broken windows era and yep. ran the numbers. They and did, yeah, like 10 years, something back. close to half a million, or yeah. something.
0: And and then you think of all the money, right? I mean, I think the their number for twenty eighteen was how much bail got paid for those folks, and I think they landed on about two hundred million dollars. And so that's two hundred million dollars coming out of low income communities, communities of color here in this city to pay bail. For the, or the bail
1: bond industry. Or the ba- mostly to the bail bond industry, yeah.
0: right? That's most of where that's going. Um, so we, this we, is, we should this maybe just be... tell
1: people what the changes are, so they know what we're talking about.
0: Yeah, I mean, the biggest of which is that there's a whole bunch of offenses now, misdemeanor offenses and some nonviolent felony offenses for which they have to let people go.
1: Right. It's not like you need to consider this. It's now a clear mandate. They
0: have to let people go. There's not a mechanism, with with rare exception and in technical things that I won't Mm -hmm. won't dive into here, uh, they just have to let those folks go. The rationale behind this, of course, is that why are we holding people to begin with if there's no immediate or obvious threat to the like safety, uh, the public safety uh, here, and so a significant portion of the people that are cycling through Rikers every year uh, on these misdemeanor charges and nonviolent felony charges will not be there anymore. They will it, you give them a court date. They're gonna, there's going to be some pretrial services that will help folks sort of get back to court as they need to, and then they also change as an aspect of the larger package. There's an element there that requires police to give people desk appearance tickets. This is also a huge change because this happens for a lot of the low level offenses, particularly misdemeanors, where the police will no longer have the option of detaining those folks, you know, as they have been, like bringing them back to the station, fingerprinting them, mugshot, holding them. um, Holding them
1: right through to arraignment. Right through to
0: arraignment. That's right. On on a really minor. On a minor charge. And that's no longer going to be an option for them. So these are major changes that are going to fundamentally alter the landscape of the pretrial justice process here in the state of New York.
1: All right, well, another panoply of sort of non-monetary release conditions involves supervised release, right? This this notion of a really beefed up pre-trial services agency that is going to be assisting people who are released, but helping them, getting them maybe services they might require and helping them show up for their next court appearance. That seems like a big lift uh, and a big implementation lift in New York City and even more so upstate, full disclosure, we're already at Center for Court Innovation helping to run supervised release in this city. But what are you seeing there in terms of preparation for this big shift, especially upstate, maybe? Yeah,
0: down here in the city, the impact of these reforms will be significant, but the city is far more prepared to implement these reforms than are any jurisdiction outside of the city. There's two reasons for that. One is that you really do have two jurisdictions operating with really separate conditions, here in the state of New York, you have inside of New York City and outside, and they could not be more different in many respects. Those differences also shaped the reform process itself. We did a write-up on this that folks can find on our website if they're looking for for more background, like how did these reforms come about? What were the dynamics between advocates? Why did some advocates want one thing and others were pushing for others? I'll put it on the episode page for this as Great. well. Yeah. So New York City is unique in the state and unique in the country. We've dropped the number of people in our jail system dramatically from a peak of 21,000 in the early 90s down to 7,000 around that today. The number of people New York City is sending to prison, right, state prison, has dropped dramatically. So most of the people in state prisons used to be coming from New York City. That is no longer the case. and hasn't been so for some time.
1: Right now, it's outside New York City that is driving incarceration. That's
0: right. Outside of New York City. And New York City has established a range of different programs and services that the ecosystem of reform here is just fundamentally different. So groups like CCI, but there's a range of other groups as well that are piloting projects, starting programs, alternative to incarceration programs, diversion, reentry programs. We probably have the most robust reentry apparatus here in the country as well as probably the most robust ATI, alternative to incarceration apparatus in the country. It's just different here in the city. The judges have culturally shifted much of what they're doing. So, all of this is to say we've made progress. It's not to say we've sort of achieved where we need to be. We don't at all believe that. That's why we're continuing to work for reforms. But it is important to understand how far we've come here so that we can really begin to contend meaningfully with what we now have to do to get to the, a farther, you know, a finish line down the road. So, those differences are going to shape how this thing gets implemented. And one of the biggest factors here, aside from money, which is a big one, like the investments to make the pretrial services work, they haven't been done to the extent that they need to be. Yeah,
1: there's very little new money, right, right. for upstate for these pretrial service agencies, which in many counties and jurisdictions barely exist, right, or run out of the probation department.
0: Yes. But the other thing that's big is that a part of that jurisdictional difference the majority of the people that are currently in detention in the city of New York are there on felony charges, and out of that universe, mostly violent felony charges. Everywhere else in the state, most of the people that are in the local jails are being detained on misdemeanor charges. Awaiting trial Awaiting on trial. misdemeanor charges. That's right. But this difference, I can not you can't overstate the importance of this for implementation reasons, because the drop here in New York City and that shift is not just unique in the state of New York, it's unique nationally. There's few other places that have done that, certainly of the large jurisdictions. And there's few other places that have that that makeup of a detention population that have also dropped the number of people it's detaining or even bringing into the system as much as New York City has. This is important for implementation because it means that culturally actors in the system are more familiar and ready to do something like this, even if all the resources that are needed to do it aren't totally there yet. Now, the state should put much more resources into pretrial stuff. And we think that there's a lot more that has to be done on the reform side to make that really and into, clear.
1: into training exactly. staffed in, in order to sort of change this culture.
0: But it, it will look, as a result, it will look different in the city of New York. And in upstate, we're anticipating that some counties may even just flat out refuse to implement at first. The DAs are dragging their feet. Upstate elected officials, in, you know, from the legislature already want to change the law, as do some here in the city, actually. So this is as this is going to be a political fight as much as anything else to get to make these counties follow through. But we also have to keep pushing the state to provide the resources necessary so that counties aren't going back to using jails as a mechanism available to them to bring people back to court. Because after January 1st, they won't have that option for most people anymore.
1: All right. So implementation. Always, this massive challenge when it comes to you can craft legislation, but how it actually happens on the ground becomes this enormous issue. Yes. And we're we're flagging. We're just going to put a flag then in this fact that upstate is a or basically everywhere outside of New York City is a real concern yep. when it comes to implementing yep. this law. If but if we look at this reform itself, it's a kind of seismic shift yes. that you've you know that uh, for the state government to take. In some ways, it's similar to how New York City's Mayor Bill de Blasio, in some ways, reversed his. Position on whether or not he was in support of closing Rikers, mm-hmm. and what's your, uh, you know, analysis of how, how we got to this point of uh, politicians uh, making this commitment to, you know, basically make it so that nine out of ten cases that were eligible for bail previously are no longer eligible.
0: Community organizing, and advocacy. I mean, just that's it. You got to force people. You and you have to change the context uh, in which they are making decisions. So. The work that was done on the ground around the state, different coalitions, organizations, I mean, a bunch of different groups with a lot of people who had sat in many of these jails, or been detained in many of these jails around the state, uh, using their voices, speaking out, educating people, but also creating a a political uh, movement that had momentum on the ground in the places that these elected officials lived and worked, from which they obtained their votes. That organizing has transformed the state dialogue on this to such a degree that when the Republican Senate era ended after the Democrats took over, one of the top priorities when they came in was bail. And the reason that, that bail was, was at the top of the reform agenda is because of all this organizing on the ground and public discussion and a greater growing public awareness. But I mean, like there were rallies practically weekly up in Albany. You know, there's public forums happening around the state, rallies here in the city of New York, protests, you know, op-eds all the time. I mean, that kind of political organizing that was happening on the ground is really essential to making stuff like this possible.
1: I mean, it does seem like the criminal justice reform conversation, not just in this state, but nationally, is really changing Absolutely. Qu- quite rapidly. I mean, on the cash bail front, something like nine out of the Democratic presidential candidates are on the record as, including all the frontrunners, yes. are on the record as uh, pledging to end cash bail. Of course, the president's not able to do that, but that's yep. another discussion. But yep. um, again, you have the work of a lot of activists and groups like Catal yep. behind this movement. I, I mean, how heartened are you by, by what's happening
0: nationally? I mean, it's a completely different world in many respects that all these presidential candidates are talking about this. I mean, even four years ago in the 2016 election cycle, you didn't have it quite like this. And, you know, our current president ran on a lot like a literal law and order platform. I mean, so these we're in a different moment and hopefully it'll continue to build and, and we can continue to make the most of it. A lot of the work that has to be done is on the state level. I mean, it's great to hear the federal folks talking about it because it sets a tone. Um, but the, really the work, if we're going to end mass incarceration, has to happen at the state level. And, and we have to actually start talking about violence and what we're going to do to divert people and keep people out of prisons for violent felony offenses. We can't end mass incarceration unless we do that. So that's the next stage probably in the development of the movement is, is taking that on in a more robust way.
1: So we have this massive debate going on in New York City right now about closing down Rikers Island, this notorious and notoriously violent jail facility bail reform and the other discovery from the other reforms we've been talking about are going to be important to closing Rikers precisely because they really lower the population further that that is going to make closure possible. So I just want to flag that because these these things are connected. Yep. But I want to talk about Rikers a bit now because your group was part of the founding mm-hmm. uh, of that movement, which launched publicly in April 16. And within a little under a year led to the the mayor pledging to close the facility Katal stepped down from the campaign in the summer of 2017, but you still very much support the closure of Rikers. Mm-hmm. The mayor's plan is to replace Rikers with four smaller sort of modern facilities. There's a lot of debate about mm-hmm. that plan itself. Where is Katal at on the question of
0: after Rikers? When we launched the close Rikers campaign with Just Leadership USA, it was after nine months of work to prep the campaign and at that time there was not a political consensus around closure. And that was what we had to build and secure was making something that everyone for most political leadership in the city and state said that's impossible or that's not realistic, we can't do that. And we had to transform that dynamic from that's impossible to yes, we're gonna do this, and then go further, talk about how exactly we're gonna do it. The thing that's happening now, I mean in our view, is that Despite all of the debates and arguments that are happening publicly, there's actually quite a bit of agreement amongst all these all these actors around, you know, small number of things at least. I mean, there's no question that Rikers needs to get shut down. There's no question that these that the current jails that we have here in the city, not just on Rikers, but the current borough facilities that we have, including a jail boat. People don't know.
1: Yeah, this floating barge. We have a in floating Bronx, barge right? called the yeah. boat
0: in the East River. There's hundreds of people detained there. The Brooklyn House of Detention, the Manhattan Tombs. These are horrible facilities with the same culture that they have inside of Rikers in many respects, and all of these jails should be destroyed and gotten rid of. There's no question about those points. Where there's been a lot of of debate that's emerged here is around what to do after Rikers closes down. And here, there's a real important split. The mayor's plan, which we've been working, as has the Close Rikers campaign, of which we're a part, and Just Leadership USA and others, to... Get the mayor to change his plan. So from the point the mayor introduced that plan in twenty seventeen, there's been an effort to get him to change it and improve it. that still is happening up to this very day. So the mayor's plan has evolved in response to pressure from groups that have been sustained w- working on that.
1: And that pressure would continue even if, exactly. even if the plan passes city
0: council. Well, I the mean. plan that the, the plan in front of city council really just to be clear is is the land use proposal for these new uh, replacement facilities. That's one aspect and a critical one for the mayor's larger plan, but it is not the whole plan. That's important because there's other ways that we've been working to change the mayor's plan and some real differences that we have. Like we don't think the Department of Corrections should be playing a, a role managing these facilities in the same way that mayor's plan is to have them do so. We're fighting fighting that out. But one of the things we we believe is at the center of the debate right now is is one of the things that actually doesn't really get discussed publicly very much, which is the question of conditions of confinement. And that really is where the debate is revolving around with the Close Rikers campaign and some of the folks that are arguing for no new jails.
1: Right. People on the more abolitionist. So, I mean, in a way, we're talking about a debate that's taking place on the left, if we can say that, of criminal sure, justice absolutely. reform, and right? I, between I would, reformers and abolitionists. I, and-
0: would, I would actually really disagree with that characterization. This is not a debate between reformers and abolitionists. And I say that because Catal is an abolitionist-oriented organization where our aim is abolition. Just leadership's aim long-term at this point is abolition. Other groups that are part of the closed Rikers it's campaign... It's how we get there, it's a, It's a strategy it's a, question yeah, yeah. more than anything. And, but the reason I highlight this issue with conditions of confinement is no group has put forward a plan that says that nobody will be detained after Rikers is closed. Every single group has said, we understand that after Rikers is closed, for the foreseeable future, there will be detention in the city of New York.
1: That's just a reality. That's a reality.
0: Yeah. close Rikers campaign has put that forward. No New Jails has put that forward. The Libman Commission, the mayor. The question then is how many people will be detained then? That's been a huge fight. We're trying to get the mayor's projection to be much farther down than it is right now. Initially, they said like it's 5,000 people and they've Lowered that now to four. After the
1: bail reform. After the bail reform. We're trying to get
0: them down even farther. And one critical aspect of that is this legislation back up in Albany related to parole Parole, reform. Because there's 600, 700 people there just on parole violations. The the second thing is like, where will these people be detained? And under what conditions will they be detained in? Those questions are the fundamental, uh, the split point between what you're seeing right now happen on the left around how to proceed. Our position which we join with with Close Rikers in saying this, is, is that since there's going to be people detained here in the city of New York, they should be detained in conditions that are as humane as possible. We should not have people detained in the barge, on the boat, in the East River, in the tombs, in Manhattan, uh, I mean, in the Brooklyn House of Detention. If people are going to be detained in the city of New York, they should be detained in conditions that are as humane as they can be. What the No New Jails folks are saying is Close Rikers and detain the remaining people in the existing facilities. That's the real difference here and the, where the argument emerges. Now, there's different political reasons why people are making that demand, and I won't. they wrote a whole plan that you can go read. For us, the notion that we would keep the barge open is outrageous. It's not a place that should even exist here in the city. We're also a group that long-term is aimed at Eliminating detention entirely. How we do that is a question we could spend hours on and days. It's a a huge subject of a fight longer than what we have for here. But there will be people detained here in the city of New York when Rikers is shut down. Then the question is, under what conditions will those people be detained? And we believe that insofar as there's going to be detention here in the city of New York, detaining people in the existing facilities that we have here in the city is inhumane. And that's the fundamental difference between the two plans. And that's been lost in a lot of ways in the public dialogue and discourse, unfortunately, because these are hot, contentious issues. But yes, there should be a lot of fights and and difficult ones about like how is it that we get to a place in the city where people are treated fairly, where communities are not targeted and criminalized, where we're not investing and in wasting resources in policing and courts and all this other stuff to deal with things that are health issues. And, issues about poverty and housing and so forth.
1: So we have this sort of split uh, on the left right now and um, on criminal justice reform issues uh, about goals and and strategies and sort of what are the current realities. I I was struck reading this really great document that I'll put on the episode page as well that you did about the Close Rikers campaign Mm -hmm. and how it took shape and and lessons and organizing lessons to be drawn from it. And I I was struck by the fact that in the, you know, the formal launch of the campaign, the sign-on letter, there's no mention made in the letter about what's going to happen after Rikers. Exactly. The sole focus is on closing Rikers. Yes. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm wondering, that clearly was a strategic decision, I would think, in it was. some ways. Yes. Yeah, it was, a,
0: it was a deliberate and strategic decision because we knew that in order to, to close Rikers, we were going to need to have all hands on deck, it, that it was going to require a real robust set of demands, all demand, like groups, rather, uh, all demanding one thing together. And even now, you're seeing the rationale for why we did not articulate what would come afterwards is because we knew if we start with where we all agree, everybody can agree, or at least what we were trying to get people to agree, let's all agree we can close Rikers. So if folks say abolition, or bust, folks who are more reform ended, closing Rikers was what we worked on. We were able to build a consensus within the justice reform community here in the city of New York, that that's a thing that we can all agree on. The moment we start talking about what comes after, you got a million different ideas. Right. You got one no, many yeses. That's right. How That's how we it, framed right? it, yeah, yeah, which is a lesson that came up for, for us in the global justice movement of the of the 90s. But th- here you're, we're seeing now the different perspectives of what to do. And if we had started off a Close Rikers campaign with an outline of what was going to come after – it's not clear to me that it would have been successful or that it would have been successful in the, in the timeline that it was in terms of securing the mayor's commitment. But the thing is that once the mayor says, we're gonna do this, that's when the, sh- the dynamic shifted. The singular objective was to get the mayor to say, we're gonna close Rikers. It's gonna be the policy to close Rikers. Once that happens, now you have a whole set of other th- targets you gotta go work on to make it possible. Community boards, city council members, tenant associations, block watch groups, church and other faith based organizations, housing groups, mental health groups, all like our entire city is implicated with the question of what do we do now? Because to do it, you have to fundamentally transform the city. We have to stop using jails as a catch all for either people that we don't like or people that we're afraid of or people who have been. Lost through the the gaps in the social safety net. Like, what do we do in the here in the city to, what, about the fact that we've institutionalized racial disparities and that's ingrained in many respects in ways that are hard to unroot? I mean, like, closing Rikers is a is a fundamentally systems transformation that is going to be ugly because that's how that stuff is. And we just knew that if we if we could have a crystal clear shared demand of closing Rikers, that we get people on the page for that. They it would put us in a better position to fight out in the next phase. How do we do it? And so fighting to improve the mayor's plan and to get the city and hold the city accountable here is a huge factor in all of this at this point. And getting the mayor to follow through, not just on his commitment, but to make the plan align with some of the demands that are coming from communities that have been most impacted by this has been the the work of the last two years. And that's how we got here. And so if we're gonna get to closure, full closure, in my view, it will not come because any elected official says, I promise you this will happen. And it won't even necessarily come if we get a legal you know, ruling that says the Rikers has to shut down because we've seen what happens with those kinds of promises. Or even when we, when we pass legislation, you've got to implement it. If you've got a legal ruling, you've got you to do it. We believe that the closure process is only going to be realized if we sustain organizing and increase that organizing over time until the last person is taken off that island and it's shut down for good until that happens we have to keep up the energy and effort to make this hold the city accountable on this regardless of who's in office you know
1: the ugliness that you're talking about and there's and there's some ugliness on on the left right now in this city on, on the reform stuff mm-hmm, i mean absolutely. there's this kind of suggestion coming from the from the no new jail side somewhat that you know anybody who's in favor of closing rikers and acknowledges that you're going to need some kind of physical facilities to replace it, that anybody advocating that is some kind of crypto-carceral stater mm-hmm. uh, or something. Uh, but it sounds like, to me,
0: you you knew this ugliness was... You knew this was going to come. Yeah, we knew it was going to come. It's, it's a matter of how we organize around it. I mean, look, like some of the the demands and claims that are being made, I, I think there's, there's a lot of passionate folks in this. With social media and whatnot, things that can be far more amplified. I think if you read the No New Jails platform as we have. And you can see some of the arguments in there are solid, good arguments. A lot of it is really similar to what the Kohl's Rikers campaign has put forward. And the No New Jails folks themselves have acknowledged there will be detention afterwards. I don't know what purpose like some of the or, like larger vitriol serves other than like that's the kind of vitriol we see that's sort of normalized in today's political climate. So if you ignore that, And you focus in on the substance here there's a lot of common ground to build on here and if we can find a way for groups particularly on the left or on the progressive side to find the areas where there is common ground and collaborate in those places and to at least where there's disagreement may have those disagreements operate in such a fashion that they don't ultimately disrupt or otherwise pull the rug out from under the larger process that's usually That's kind of how this stuff goes. I mean, it's not new. It's not it's certainly not uh, intrinsic to this fight. But our larger concern is around the 2021 election cycle here in the city of New York. Whoever's going to be mayor, two thirds of the city council is turning over. DAs are being reelected. Borough presidents are being reelected. I mean, we're looking at a really seismic shift in the political universe here in the city of New York in the 2021 elections. And so that's where we think that wherever we can find common ground with folks along the range of the political spectrum, we should. And then, you know, we, like there's some important details certainly to disagree around and fight over that we should. But again, no group, including no new jails, has, has put forward a notion that there's not going to be detention after records closed for the foreseeable future. And so we've got to figure out how we're going to proceed there and, and do so in a way where we can keep the detention populations on a downward trend as they have been and like for Catal and clearly for Nona Gio, like, and I think for folks in the Close records campaign we eventually want to get to zero but that's not going to happen until we build, build more political power we got to make additional changes up in Albany and we're going to have to continue to transform the political dynamics here in the city of New York to make something like that possible so that's our task
1: the work continues the work continues in essence well Gabriel thanks so much for your work and for the work of Catal, Thank um, and thanks so much for making the time to come yeah. in here today thanks for
0: having me I appreciate it
1: so that was my conversation with Gabriel Saya. He is the co-founder and co-executive director of the Catal Center for Health, Equity, and Justice. You heard a couple of references in there to the episode page. It's full of resources and references to help you dig deeper into today's conversation. Click the link in your show notes or go to courtinnovation.org newthinking. For their help with this episode, my thanks go to Aubrey Fox, Craig McNair, Sarah Reckes, Tim Donaher, Scott Heckinger, and the illustrious Court Innovation Jail Reduction duo of Mike Rumpel and Crystal Rodriguez. This episode was edited and produced by me. You can find me on Twitter at didacticmat, And please consider giving New Thinking a rating and review on iTunes. Technical support is from the Cherry Bill Harkins. Samiha Mia is our Director of Design. Emma Dayton is our VP of Outreach. Our theme music is by Michael Aaron at QuiverNYC.com. And our show's founder is Rob Wolf. This has been New Thinking from the Center for Court Innovation. I'm Matt Watkins. Thanks for listening.